Have the factory and the workshop at the gates of your fields and gardens, and work in them. Not those large establishments, of course, in which huge masses of metals have to be dealt with, and which are better placed at certain spots indicated by nature, but the countless variety of workshops and factories which are required to satisfy the infinite diversity of tastes among civilized men. Not those factories in which children lose all the appearance of children in the atmosphere of an industrial hell, but those airy and hygienic and consequently economical factories in which human life is of more account than machinery and the making of extra profits. Factories and workshops into which men, women, and children will not be driven by hunger, but will be attracted by the desire of finding an activity suited to their tastes, and where, aided by the motor and the machine, they will choose the branch of activity which best suits their inclinations. Let those factories and workshops be erected, not for making profits by selling shoddy or useless and noxious things to enslaved Africans, but to satisfy the unsatisfied needs of millions of Europeans. And again, you will be struck to see with what facility and in how short a time your needs of dress and of thousands of articles of luxury can be satisfied when production is carried on for satisfying real needs rather than for satisfying shareholders by high profits or for pouring gold into the pockets of promoters and bogus directors. Very soon you will yourselves feel interested in that work and you will have occasion to admire in your children their eager desire to become acquainted with nature and its forces their inquisitive inquiries as to the powers of machinery, and their rapidly developing inventive genius. Technics and science will not be lagging behind if production takes such a direction. They will reduce the time which is necessary for producing wealth to any desired amount, so as to leave everyone as much leisure as he or she may ask for. They surely cannot guarantee happiness, because happiness depends as much or even more upon the individual himself as upon his surroundings but they guarantee at least the happiness that can be found in the full and varied exercise of the different capacities of the human being, in work that need not be overwork, and in the consciousness that one is not endeavoring to base his own happiness upon the misery of others. These are the horizons which the above inquiry opens to the unprejudiced mind. Peter Kropotkin Welcome back to Everyday Anarchism, the show that finds anarchism, mutual aid, cooperation, non-domination, all around you, animating your everyday life. I'm your host, Graham Colbertson. This week's episode is about the supply chain, the first of a few episodes which are Christmas-themed or at least relate to Christmas. This week was supposed to be about traffic circles, but I decided that the supply chain demanded an anarchist takedown. I will also have one on Santa Claus in the Twilight Zone. Yes, there is an episode where Santa Claus comes to the Twilight Zone. It is fantastic and I think very anarchist. And Professor Ruth Kinna is coming to discuss the anarchism of Santa Claus. But first, the supply chain nightmare is here to ruin Christmas. I thought I'd give you a comforting fantasy of a world without a supply chain. And then explain, actually, we could make it a reality pretty easily. Imagine there's no supply chain. It's easy if you try. So I've got three parts of this anarchist attack on the supply chain. First, I'm going to Graberize the supply chain, by which I mean show you that it has a different origin than you think it has. Graber did this with money, for example. Money doesn't come from barter like you have been taught. It comes from 
debt. We had this recently with police abolition. People said, you can't abolish the police. We need them. And then people pointed out, actually, police were not created to protect the public. They were often created as part of slave catching patrols in the South and then even the North. There were also police departments that were created simply to force wage slaves to work and break up strikes. And the supply chain has pretty much the same origin. It is the product of slavery and colonialism. It was not created to get stuff to middle-class consumers. It was created to give power to the powerful. Second, I'm going to look at our awful, awful supply chain catastrophe. Not the fact that it's hard to get Christmas presents right this second, but just how the supply chain is monstrous, how it reinforces wage slavery. We'll talk about Apple in China and the iPhone, and we will also talk about N95 masks. Also, I will provide you a vision of a supply chain that has been anarchized, and it's something that will take a long time to do, but also you, yes, you, dear listener, can start doing that today as you do your Christmas shopping, or maybe Christmas unshopping. And to provide this argument is that blessed prince, that beautiful white Christ, which is what Oscar Wilde called him, that beautiful white Christ, Peter Kropotkin and his attack on the supply chain. Part one, industrialism, colonialism, and the birth of the supply chain. So there used to be, you know, no supply chain. I'm going to give you a ridiculously oversimplified history and then a little more detail on it, but I think this history is mostly true. What is now the supply chain used to be the Silk Road. There was China and India on one end, it went through the Middle East, and then Africa and Europe on the other ends. Africa, I think, had some pretty great stuff that people liked and wanted, but I'm woefully underinformed about the African part of the Silk Road. India and China, though, had the best stuff by far. Europeans had shit. They had nothing. Indian and Chinese and Middle Eastern uh, elites liked European clocks and European automata, these clockwork robots, once Europeans were able to make them, but otherwise no Europeans had anything that anyone wanted on the other end of the supply chain. So Europeans uh, did piracy and also, you know, they traded gold, precious metals. That was the only thing. They didn't make anything or produce anything that the Middle Eastern, the African, and the Asian civilizations wanted. So, all the good stuff. Silk, spices, math flowed to Europe. Uh, and all Europe had to give up was whatever gold and silver it had, which it mostly had to obtain by piracy or just, you know, pirate the silk. You can imagine this is kind of a crummy deal for Europe, but there was nothing they could do about it. So then the Europeans did something about it. Uh, I really shouldn't say the Europeans, I should say the Christians. They, they didn't call themselves Europe then, they called themselves Christendom. Europe is really an anachronism. I might touch on that more in this episode, but we'll definitely get to it at some point in this podcast. The Europeans wanted more power, they wanted better stuff, they wanted a better deal, and they had these new ships, and they had new military technologies, and they sailed these ships down Africa and across the Atlantic and, quote, discovered the Americas, as well as sea routes that could replace some of the Silk Road. Spain, which controlled most of these colonial sites, extracted tons of gold and silver from them, got very powerful, and all the other powers of Christendom started trying to catch up. Especially after the Protestant Reformation, when Christendom was more complicated and the Protestants were racing to create their own colonial empires, like, you know, what became the United States. And then they invented the supply chain. 
Hopefully you learned about this in school, the triangle or the triangular trade. Raw materials, sugar, coffee, lumber, tobacco, and eventually, above all, cotton came from developing places to developed places, which eventually included the northeastern colonies in the northeastern United States as well as Europe. When we get to the 19th century, we'll have the U.S. and Europe. In the 17th century, we have Christendom and some white Christian colonies, but these are just different names for the same thing. Those goods got processed in these industrial centers of Christendom, made into furniture or cloth or rum or whatever, and they got exported, if possible, to a developing country for a big profit or to somewhere along the old Silk Road. And then the people who did all the work were the third part of the triangular trade. Human beings, enslaved human beings from Africa. This is the supply chain. You may have been taught that slavery was part of capitalism, was part of industrialism, was part of the supply chain. It wasn't really. It was the supply chain. Not only did enslaved Africans do a huge part of the work, while wage slaves did pretty much all the rest of the work, the enslaved people themselves were part of the supply chain. If you were a logistics expert in the 18th century, a big part of your logistics expertise was moving slaves around. I hope this makes the idea of a logistics expert seem less fun. But somehow this story gets even worse because chattel slavery doesn't go away. But when the Industrial Revolution happens, colonialism and wage slavery both get worse. Chattel slavery also becomes even more brutal, at least in the United States in the 19th century. So the Industrial Revolution happens, and it happens first in Britain. And now Britain can make so much more stuff. They can make so much cotton cloth, or they can make lots of opium. So now we've got our very first supply chain nightmare. The Britons can make lots of opium and cotton, more opium and cotton than anyone can buy. But how are they going to make lots of profits if no one is buying their stuff? What would they have to do? Shut these factories down? Stop enslaving people? Give power to ordinary citizens? That would be a nightmare. Then colonialism will stop working and, you know, what would happen to the supply chain? So let's conquer some more places. Let's make the supply chain longer. The supply chain wasn't created after colonialism. Colonialism was created so the supply chain could keep working. We will sell the cloth to India and the opium to China. No one needs coffee. No one needs sugar. No one needs opium. No one needs that much cloth. Just like nobody needs a new iPhone or a new plastic toy made in a sweatshop. But we've got to keep the supply chain going so it's your duty to buy a new iPhone. It's your duty to buy opium, China. So the British conquer the world and they build a huge navy. And the point of this navy is not to do colonialism. It's to expand the supply chain. Supply chain first, colonialism second. The supply chain didn't grow because the British had a big empire. The British built a big empire because they wanted a supply chain. They wanted to reverse the Silk Road. Colonialism and slavery come downstream of the supply chain. The supply chain is the source of modern imperialism. Of course, I'll give you this podcast's favorite historian, Eric Hobsbawm, to give this entire story really in just one dense paragraph. India was systematically deindustrialized and became in turn a market for Lancashire cottons. 
1820, the subcontinent took only 11 million yards, but by 1840, it already took 145 million yards. This was not merely a gratifying extension of Lancashire's markets. It was a major landmark in world history. For since the dawn of time, Europe had always imported more from the east than she had sold there. Because there was little the Orient required from the West in return for the spices, silks, calicos, jewels, etc. which it sent there. The cotton shirtings of the Industrial Revolution for the first time reversed this relationship, which had been hitherto kept in balance by a mixture of bullion exports and robbery. Only the conservative and self-satisfied Chinese still refused to buy what the West or Western-controlled economies offered. Until between 1815 and 1842, Western traders, aided by Western gunboats, discovered an ideal commodity which could be exported in mass from India to the East, opium. Picking up that story a little bit more, Hobsbawm explains that the British actually didn't conquer that many places, not in the, hey, we rule this place, since we are the new government. What they did was conquer the harbors, hence places like Hong Kong being British, but not China itself. And then they didn't have to establish their own government. They just had to get people addicted to cheap iPhones. I'm sorry, I mean cheap opium. And then, as long as the harbor was protected, the spice, I'm sorry, the opium would flow. Now, Hoswell also points out there is one exception to this, one region that was so crucial to the supply chain that Britain did insist on ruling it directly. On the whole, with one crucial exception, their view was that a world lying open to British trade and safeguarded by the British Navy from unwelcome intrusion was more cheaply exploited without the administrative costs of occupation. The crucial exception was India and all that pertained to its control. India had to be held at all costs, as the most anti-colonialist free traders never doubted. This is me jumping in. Even if you were against colonialism in Britain, he's saying... You never suggested that India should be released from British domination because that would kill the supply chain. Back to Hobsbawm. Its market was of growing importance. It was the key to the opening up of the Far East to the drug traffic and such other profitable activities as European businessmen wished to undertake. China was thus opened up in the Opium War of 1839 to 1842. Consequently, between 1814 and 1849, the size of the British Indian Empire increased by two-thirds of the subcontinent as the result of a series of wars against Maharatas, Nepalese, Burmans, Rajputs, Afghans, Sindhis, and Sikhs, and the net of British influence was drawn more closely around the Middle East, which controlled the direct route to India, organized from 1814 by the steamers of the P&O line, supplemented by a land crossing of the Suez Isthmus. So the key to the supply chain was India. They buy all the cloth, conquer them, destroy their factories, and the supply chain can flow. Everyone else just has to keep the supply chain moving. Let's go around the Middle East. They might disrupt the supply chain. When the Suez Canal was built, the British opposed it because it might disrupt the supply chain. When it was finished, that was when the deeper colonialism of Africa happened. Sometimes called the scramble for Africa or the rape of Africa because, hey, new supply chains. Once you get the Suez Canal, new supply chain means new colonialism, new slavery. I'm ready to create a new phrase. It's not the sun never sets on the British Empire. The sun never sets on the British supply chain. And the supply chain never goes away. It just starts being run by the Americans. And the new Silk Road, the new supply chain, which doesn't have a single hegemon or ruler, but is a collaboration and struggle between China and America. I think the best way into the 21st century supply chain is the iPhone. 
The all-time biggest article about the 21st century supply chain came out in the New York Times in 2012 about the iPhone, and it won a Pulitzer. So I'm going to walk you through this 2012 article, and we can talk about the big supply chain problem of the pandemic, which is masks. And we can see the mask stuff is the product of the same stuff that was happening related to the iPhone. And then see where we stand with relation to Christmas and a potential alternate supply chain. So here's some quotes from that New York Times article. Apple executives say that going overseas at this point is their only option. One former executive described how the company relied upon a Chinese factory to revamp iPhone manufacturing just weeks before the device was due on shelves. Apple had redesigned the iPhone screen at the last minute, forcing an assembly line overhaul. New screens began arriving at the plant near midnight. A foreman immediately roused 8,000 workers inside the company's dormitories, according to the executive. Each employee was given a biscuit and a cup of tea, guided to a workstation, and within half an hour started a 12-hour shift fitting glass screens into beveled frames. Within 96 hours, the plant was producing over 10,000 iPhones a day. The speed and flexibility is breathtaking, the executive said. There's no American plant that can match that. (laughs) Okay, end of quote. Sorry, I'm speechless. He's describing slavery. This this executive is describing slavery. Um, and the article goes on to explain that even though the executive is talking about this in triumphal terms, the speed and flexibility is breathtaking. Is it really flexibility if you are living in a dormitory and you can be woken up and forced to work within an hour? Flexibility for Apple, not for the people actually building the iPhone. This triumphal story for Apple was actually so bad for Foxconn that Foxconn, the people who run that factory, say that this story is a lie. They wouldn't actually wake up their employees like that. Their employees aren't slaves. They're wonderful members of the Foxconn team. They're giving 110% to increase synergy, and they probably get, like, bathroom breaks or something, probably. We'll check on that. Just, just, you know, capitalism, good. The article, (laughs) the people who wrote the article also spoke to some of the Foxconn workers, and the Foxconn workers said that the story is true. I would be astonished that the Apple executive talked about this as a triumph rather than a tragedy, but that's just how corporations do. Supply chain uber alles. And the fact that later reporting showed that Foxconn factories have lots of suicides and they've had to put up big suicide prevention nets suggests that A, this is true, and B, it is a catastrophe. Back to the New York Times article. We sell iPhones in over a hundred countries, a current Apple executive said. We don't have an obligation to solve America's problems. Our only obligation is making the best product possible. First of all, that's a ridiculous lie. Best product possible? They make the most profitable product possible. Apple will happily make a shitty product if they make a lot of money. You must know that quote, Apple executive. Your only obligation is to your profits. You don't become the most profitable country in the world by focusing on making the best product possible. I also just hate this framing. We can build our factories in China because our job is to make products or profits, not to solve America's problems. Uh, How about the problems of the workers who are committing suicide because you have collaborated with an organization that is free to basically enslave them? Steve Jobs had a temper tantrum because he wanted glass screens and all of a sudden tens of thousands of workers have to do what Steve Jobs said. And the only thing the Apple executive has to defend is the fact that this factory is in China, not the fact that it is, you know, ruining people's lives to the point of suicide. Back to this Apple article. Let's read the story of how Apple ended up working at Foxconn. 
Apple had already selected an American company, Corning, to manufacture large panes of strengthened glass. But figuring out how to cut those panes into millions of iPhone screens required finding an empty cutting plant, hundreds of pieces of glass to use in experiments, and an army of mid-level engineers. It would cost a fortune simply to prepare. (laughs) If only you knew someone who had a fortune. Apple. Then a bid for the work arrived from a Chinese factory. When an Apple team visited, the Chinese plant's owners were already constructing a new wing. This is in case you give us the contract, the manager said, according to a former Apple executive. The Chinese government had agreed to underwrite costs for numerous industries, and those subsidies had trickled down to the glass cutting factory. It had a warehouse filled with glass samples available to Apple free of charge. The owners made engineers available at almost no cost. They had built on-site dormitories so employees would be available 24 hours a day. Okay, so yes, it's true, the Foxconn factories in China can do the job cheaper than Corning. But that's because the Chinese government is playing the game that the British government was playing. They want in on the supply chain. They want in on the colonialism game. They want wage slavery for their people so the people who are running the system can take lots of money. China is subsidizing the iPhones. There's this meme out there, this pro-capitalism meme that without capitalism we couldn't have iPhones. Does this sound like capitalism to you? Engineers working for free, the government building factories, workers forced to live on site. This is capitalism crossed with Stalinist Russia, which as you know from our brief history of the supply chain is the way capitalism has always worked. It has always been combined with slavery and wage slavery. Here's the money quote from the whole article. The entire supply chain is in China now, said another former high-ranking Apple executive. You need a thousand rubber gaskets? That's the factory next door. You need a million screws? That factory's a block away. You need that screw made a little bit different? It will take three hours. (laughs) But I mean, do you actually need a million screws? I mean, a million screws is very useful if your goal is to make as many widgets as possible, as quickly as possible, as cheaply as possible for the highest profit possible and you don't care if that requires semi-enslaved workers and the destruction of the environment. In this respect, Apple is right. If you need to have a million screws on a moment's notice, subsidized by a totalitarian government with no concern for the environment, then China is the place to build your factory. Unless something happens to the supply chain. Remember earlier in the pandemic when we had no masks? Like, none? Because someone forgot to stock them? Like Obama or Bush or Trump or someone? There was all sorts of finger-pointing. But, you know, I understand it can be hard to remember if you've got more paper towels in the closet. Kind of hope that maybe somebody else will pick them up next time they go to the grocery store and buy the paper towels. Hey, uh, Rom, can you look and see if there are 4 billion N95 masks in that closet? You know, the one that's supposed to have 4 billion N95 masks in it. Oh, you've got to become mayor of Chicago. Okay, just can you ask someone else to check on it? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm busy. I'm sure Hillary will take care of it. So, why didn't we just make more N95 masks when someone forgot to put them in the pantry? Don't we have factories that can make N95 masks? Another very abbreviated version of this story. America used to make lots of those masks. Then China started making them, and American companies chasing efficiency and profit, aka not having to spend much money on things so we can keep more of it for ourselves and dive into it Scrooge McDuck style, stopped buying the American masks because the Chinese masks were cheaper. And then, you know, the pandemic came. Let's take a look at this story. Here's a Wired article from March 2020. Pre-pandemic, 
The average American-made mask retailed for about $0.10 a piece, or $5 for a box of 50 masks. I believe these are surgical masks, not N95, by the way. Prestige Ameritech Executive Vice President Mike Bowen says, China-made masks often sold for $0.02 each, or $1 per box of 50 masks. After the novel coronavirus came to the U.S. in January, prices for face masks on Amazon spiked at least 50% for half of the listings, according to a study by the USPIRG Education Fund a consumer advocacy group. In late February, an Amazon listing for 100 generic blue face masks, which the company labeled as the Amazon bestseller in the product category, cost $15. So we could easily make these masks for $5, these surgical masks, a box, but it was just cheaper to get them from China for $1 a box. But then the supply chain gets halted and we are paying $15 a box. That's not winning. That's profits for the American companies who import the masks, but it is not good for America. Later in that same article, Bowen is talking about only accepting long-term contracts. The last time the country faced a comparable mask shortage was during the 2009 H1N1 outbreak. To meet increased demand, Prestige Ameritech hired hundreds of new employees and expanded its manufacturing capabilities. But after the outbreak died down, Bowen says that most hospitals that had relied on Prestige Ameritech went back to Chinese suppliers, which typically sell masks and respirators for less than it costs him to produce. In 2011, after the H1 pandemic ended, we had to lay off 150 people, Bowen recalls. 150 people that saved a lot of hospitals from closing their doors were rewarded by losing their jobs. And that's not going to happen again. Remember, this is March 2020. It actually is happening again. Prestige Ameritech and other companies made a lot of masks, but the U.S. government isn't stockpiling them. And now cheaper ones are coming from China again because their factories are running and also that fucking boat got unstuck or whatever. So we're just going to shut down all the factories again. Got to get that supply chain back up. Everything's got to be normal. Can't have a mask that costs five cents. It's got to be two cents. Shipping the mask will destroy the environment. Making the mask will destroy the lives of the workers. And then lots of Americans will die during the next pandemic. But what's the entire ecosystem and also hundreds of thousands of American lives and also the lives of Foxconn workers? We got to save those three cents. Now, I do need to point out there is a stupid right-wing talking point about this idea. We should buy American because of, quote, national security. This is sometimes called America first. It feels right to most Americans. I don't think it's completely confined to the right-wing, at least not the far right. We should buy American. And here's a quote from an NPR article. Uh, a group of American mask makers wrote to the government, quote, This is not only a matter of national security, but of national pride. And Mike Bowen was quoted, the prestige Ameritech guy, recently as calling it a national security issue. First of all, screw national pride. I mean, it's embarrassing how badly we have handled this, but do I really care about whether we have saved face during the pandemic? I don't want national honor. I just want, you know, masks that save people's lives. But it's definitely not a banner of national security unless you think winning the supply chain is a matter of national security. That's the national security of British imperialism. Otherwise, what does that mean? Are there going to be bombs in boxes of KN95 masks? Are they going to be poisoned? Is the Chinese army going to jump out of a container ship and conquer America Red Dawn style? This is not a national security issue. It is a public health issue and a worker exploitation issue and an environmental catastrophe issue. Now, as a point of transition, 
I want to go back to that iPhone article. Why couldn't we just make them in the US? Here's what the article says. It is hard to estimate how much more it would cost to build iPhones in the United States. However, various academics and manufacturing analysts estimate that because labor is such a small part of technology manufacturing, paying American wages would add up to $65 to each iPhone's expense. Since Apple's profits are often hundreds of dollars per phone, building domestically, in theory, would still give the company a healthy reward. But such calculations are, in many respects, meaningless, because building the iPhone in the United States would demand much more than hiring Americans. It would require transforming the national and global economies. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Thank you, New York Times. The problem is not that Apple is building its iPhones in China. The problem is the faith in the supply chain and the fact that we have not anarchized the American and global economy. That is the solution. And it just so happens that Kropotkin wrote an entire book. That's where the opening quote of this episode came from for how to replace this colonialist, monstrous, slave-creating, slavery-reinforcing, and environmentally-destroying supply chain with an anarchist system of production. This is part three. The anarchist system of production. Here's Kropotkin. Under the name of profits, rent, interest upon capital, surplus value, and the like, economists have eagerly discussed the benefits which the owners of land or capital, or some privileged nations, can derive either from the underpaid work of the wage laborer or from the inferior position of one class of the community towards another class, or from the inferior economical development of one nation towards another nation. These profits are being shared in a very unequal proportion between the different individuals, classes, and nations engaged in production. These profits being shared in a very unequal proportion between the different individuals, classes, and nations engaged in production, considerable pains were taken to study the present appointment of the benefits, and its economical and moral consequences, as well as the changes in the present economical organization of society, which might bring about a more equitable distribution of a rapidly accumulating wealth. It is upon questions relating to the right to the increment of wealth that the hottest battles are now fought between economists of different schools. Okay, so he is describing economics over a hundred years ago, and it sounds just like economics now. How can we make as much stuff as possible, as quickly as possible, as cheaply as possible? And then how can we divide that stuff up between the people who want it? The goal is efficiency, right? Even if it's not even profit driven, they still want, quote, growth. We call this, quote, productivity. Economists are obsessed with it. And Kropotkin says, how about how do we make enough stuff for people's happiness? Economists have decided not to even ask that question. In Kropotkin's time, sure. But in 2021, here's Kropotkin again. In the meantime, the great question, what have we to produce and how, necessarily remained in the background. Political economy, as it gradually emerges from its semi-scientific stage, tends more and more to become a science devoted to the study of the needs of men and the means of satisfying them with the least possible waste of energy. That is a sort of physiology of society. But few economists as yet have recognized that this is the proper domain of economics and have attempted to treat their subject from this point of view. The main subject of social economy, that is, the economy of energy required for the satisfaction of human needs, is consequently the last subject which one expects to find treated in a concrete form in economical treatise. 
So this is Kropotkin Graeberizing the field of economics. And yes, Graeber often cites Kropotkin. So we could maybe call it Kropotkinizing the field of economics. You've got this field called political economy, and it is the study of the national and international economy. And what does it study? It studies rent and interest and profits and surplus value. Any economist listening to this podcast right now are nodding their head. Yes, yes, right on, good sir. Must have those profits. What, what? Productivity. And then Kropotkin says, what if instead of trying to maximize how much stuff we can make in order to make as much money as possible, why don't we use economics to understand how we could best make everything everyone needs to be happy? And now the economists who are listening have just had their minds blown. Except for Thomas Piketty. Love you, Piketty. Hopefully you're listening. There are two economic responses to this. Either, wait, can he do that? And can we do that? That's the good one. And the bad ones are thinking, he can't do that. That's simply not economics. Good day to you, sir. I said good day. So first of all, apologies to British people for my terrible British accent. I don't know what possessed me to try that. Um, I also have no idea why I just started the stereotype that economists are upper-class Brits. Uh, I'm, I'm very sorry, Britain. I will try never again to associate you with such a heartless, cruel group. Um, no apologies to the economists. You know what you did. So this is how we get the three million screws problem. They were so busy asking themselves if they could make three million screws in a day, they forgot to ask themselves if they should make three million screws in a day. And obviously that's not something the world needs. Three million screws in a day in order to prop up a totalitarian government, exploit workers, and destroy the environment. Hey, you've just destroyed everything good in the world, but it was worth it because profits? I mean, the economists say we're trying to increase productivity. Yay, we increased productivity! I mean, you could have made a good profit if you'd been willing to settle for only, I don't know, 2.8 million screws, but you weren't. 2.8 million screws isn't cool. You know what's cool? 3 million screws. Back from the disastrous world in which we live, in which, you know, someone makes a little oopsie-daisy while they're piloting a big ship, and now Christmas is canceled for the entire world. What does Kropotkin say we should do instead? Remember, his goal is to make everything people need, but without causing undue suffering and destroying the environment. Oh, Prince Peter, so naive. Somewhere I'm sure he's in economic hell, constantly apologizing for thinking that people's lives and ecological catastrophe was more important than productivity. Back to what he actually said. First, we've got to get rid of those giant factories. The narrow conception of life, which consisted in thinking that profits are the only leading motive of human society, and the stubborn view which supposes that what has existed yesterday would last forever, proved in disaccordance with the tendencies of human life. And life took another direction. This is, I think, overly optimistic. He's explaining why we're going to move away from those big factories. This one you got wrong, Peter. As of 2021, the other kind of economist won. Nobody will deny the high pitch of production which may be attained by specialization. But precisely in proportion as the work required from the individual in modern production becomes simpler and easier, and therefore also more monotonous and wearisome, the requirements of the individual for varying his work, for exercising all his capacities, become more and more prominent. Humanity perceives that there is no advantage for the community in riveting a human being for all his life to a given spot in a workshop or a mine. No gain in depriving him of such work as would bring him into free intercourse with nature, make of him a conscious part of the grand whole, a partner in the highest enjoyments of science and art of free work and creation. Well, I, I gotta say, this is just beautiful. Um, he, he's drawing on the work of William Morris. I just, humanity perceives that there is no advantage in riveting a human being for all his life to a given spot. I mean, clearly humanity 
is happy to rivet people until they die to a spot if it means iPhones. So he, he was wrong about this world, but he's not wrong about the value of creating this artisanal world. And as much as he is interested in the work of William Morris, Morris being the man who really revived the idea of craft, of handmade beautiful things, I don't think he would argue that we need, you know, an artisanal craftsman making N95 masks. But we could have relatively small factories where everybody knows each other and the masks don't have to travel 10,000 miles to get used and no one is being exploited and there's no bosses. And to be clear here, the system we have, the biggest losers, besides the people of the entire world because of the environment, are the people of China. I don't want you to think that I'm making some kind of anti-China argument. I mean, anti-government of China argument, that's real easy. But the real losers are the people who have been deprived of being a partner in the highest enjoyments of science and art. It's fun to design an iPhone. It's fun to use an iPhone. But the people making your iPhone have been deprived of this. Was it worth it? I mean... Was it worth it to have these people make the KN95 masks to save your life? The mask is worth it, sure. But you could have paid 25 cents more for that mask. It still would have saved your life. And no one would have been imprisoned in a Foxconn dorm with suicide prevention measures. Was that 25 cents worth it? You'll pardon me if I don't think so. Backing away from the darkness, <laughs> let's let Kropotkin cheer me up. But the present industrial system, based upon a permanent specialization of functions, already bears in itself the germs of its proper ruin. The industrial crises, which grow more acute and protracted, are rendered still worse and still more acute by the armaments and wars implied by the present system, are rendering its maintenance more and more difficult. Moreover, the workers plainly manifest their intention to support no longer patiently the misery accompanied by each crisis. And each crisis accelerates the day when the present institutions of individual property and production will be shaken to their foundations with such internal struggles as will depend upon the more or less good sense of the now privileged classes. We are in a crisis moment with the supply chain. We Americans, we humanity. And if you didn't know, if you've listened to this podcast, you now know there is a solution. It is not to make the supply chain more flexible more nimble. Flexibility and nimble in the supply chain means on-site workers who can be woken up in the middle of the night. What we need is to make the supply chain less of a chain and more a part of our living communities. Here's Kropotkin. We maintain also that any socialist attempt at remodeling the present relations between capital and labor will be a failure if it does not take into account the tendencies towards integration. A reorganized society will have to abandon the fallacy of nations specialized for the production of either agricultural or manufactured produce. It will have to rely on itself for the production of food and many, if not most, of the raw materials. It must find the best means of combining agriculture with manufacture, the work in the field with a decentralized industry, and it will have to provide for integrated education, which education alone, by teaching both science and handicraft from earliest childhood, can give to society the men and women it needs. 
each nation her own agriculturist and manufacturer, each individual working in the field and in some industrial art, each individual combining scientific knowledge with the knowledge of a handicraft, such is, we affirm, the present tendency of civilized nations. So leaving aside the tragic line, the present tendency, Kropotkin thought this was going to happen, and it didn't. This is the near-future utopia I need to believe in. It's utterly practical. What if we didn't have a caste system? What if we didn't have knowledge workers in California and manufacturing workers, aka wage slaves in China, and then consumers, a global middle class who gives $1,000 for a new iPhone? What if we all did everything? Yes, this would, according to that New York Times article, require transforming the US and global economy. Yeah, it would, and the educational system. But it would be pretty easy if we start with the mental transformation. This is the imagine part. This is why I'm invoking John Lennon. We need to stop thinking of things as separate. The supply chain suggests that every single thing is an individual link. We're all tied together. It's a literal chain. Do you see this awful imagery? And no one wants to be on the receiving end of the chain. No one wants to be shackled. Shackles were the point of the supply chain. This is why China and America are fighting. They're fighting on who gets to be on which end of the supply chain. Everyone wants to be a developed country. No one wants to be a developing country. Everyone wants to be an office worker. Office workers are better than factory workers, but doctors and lawyers are better than office workers. And factory workers are better than janitors, and billionaires are the best of all. And everyone should do their own thing with their own kind of people. Kropotkin uses the word integration which obviously in the American context has the resonance of racial integration. But I think merely racial integration wouldn't be enough. Think about the world we live in. The rich people live in the rich neighborhoods and work together. Their life is totally segregated. The middle class are segregated from the wealthy, by the wealthy. But the middle class is also completely segregated from the lower classes. Race is a part of this. But you couldn't solve this if you merely integrated the upper class and integrated the middle class and integrated the lower classes racially, but left segregation by wealth and power and education the same. We love segregation in America. We think it's great, just so long as it's fair in certain key ways, like racially fair. Everyone has an equal chance to get into the C-suite, and you're not discriminated against by race or gender or any of these other categories. It's okay. You didn't become the COO. You became homeless. Go live under the bridge. We don't want you integrated into society if you don't have an Ivy League degree. Oh, if you merely have a state university degree, you can be integrated into middle-class society. You might even get to be integrated uh, with the doctors and lawyers who also are in that upper-middle-class zone. And yes, doctors and lawyers, unless you become CEO of the hospital, you don't get to go with the other CEO. Stay in your lane. You get to live in a top 3% neighborhood, but don't you goddamn ever think you will be in a top 1% neighborhood or we will bust you down to the lowest thing you can imagine, which I'm guessing is a nurse. So Kropotkin's solution is integration. Integration of everything. That means not getting rid of factories. He loves science progress factories. He thinks they should be smaller. And the people who work in them could also farm or be professors. And the professors could also be farmers. And the doctors could also work in the factories. This is an easily achievable utopia, but only if we abandon this hierarchy of jobs and the subsequent neighborhood and work segregation. Here's Kropotkin. 
Of course, it would be a great mistake to imagine that industry ought to return to its handwork stage in order to be combined with agriculture. Whenever a saving of human labor can be attained by means of a machine, the machine is welcome and will be resorted to. There is hardly one single branch of industry into which machinery work could not be introduced with great advantage, at least at some of the stages of manufacture. But at the same time, handiwork will very probably extend its domain in the artistic finishing of many things which are now made entirely in the factory. And it will always remain an important factor in the growth of thousands of young and new trades. The moral and physical advantages which man would derive from dividing his work between the field and the workshop are self-evident. But the difficulty is, we are told, in the necessary centralization of modern industries. This, to jump in here, is the you have to work in China because that's where the screws are made also, as if we couldn't make screws anywhere in the world. Back to Kropotkin. In industry as well as in politics, centralization has so many admirers. I'm jumping in again in politics. He's taking a shot at Marx and Lenin. Okay, sorry. But in both spheres, the ideal of the centralizers badly needs revision. In fact, if we analyze the modern industries, we soon discover that for some of them, the cooperation of hundreds or even thousands of workers gathered on the same spot is really necessary. The great ironworks and mining enterprises decidedly belong to that category. Oceanic steamers cannot be built in village factories. The manufacturer being a strictly private enterprise, its owners find it advantageous to have all the branches of a given industry under their own management. But from a technical point of view, the advantages of such an accumulation are trifling and often doubtful. As to the petty trades, no inconvenience is experienced from a still greater subdivision between the workshops in the watch trade and very many others. There it is. Does anyone actually need 3 million screws in a day? Wouldn't it be better if 30 screws, all made locally by a local screw-mating factory, were delivered to 100,000 little regional iPhone factories all over the world? So much less oppressive? So much less destructive of the environment? Would it cost more? No, it wouldn't cost more. It would cost less. It would cost less to society. It would cost less to the environment. It might even cost less in pure dollars. But those dollars would go to the workers and not to the profits. That's the only thing at stake here. The fact that we believe that there is something called productivity and it is the same thing as profits. And man, did Kropotkin call the iPhone factory. The message is centralization, economy of scale. Who likes that? Capitalists and also Marxist-Leninists. So China, which is part Marxist-Leninist-Stalinist-Maoist and part capitalist, is the perfect place to do this. Kropotkin, here's the anarchist critique of Marxism, says it's capitalists and Marxists have the same dream. One giant factory country, everyone working together in the name of efficiency, no one allowed to ask questions. Does it really matter whether you call the person in the center of the factory boss or master or comrade or big brother? No one's fooled by the communist part. It's just capitalism by another name. Just as capitalism is just authoritarianism by another name. So the everyday part, what are you going to do? Well, you, you can't transform the world economy on your own. It's true. But you can start checking out of it. That supply chain of zero, that neighborly supply chain, it exists already in your community. You can buy your produce at a farmer's market. Buy your jelly and jam there, too. Or start making your own jelly and jam. Find someone who makes or upcycles clothes locally. Buy those, or just buy vintage clothes. Get a used bike that doesn't have to be shipped from China. 
Go to the local maker space or the local salvage space and they'll teach you how to repair it. This would definitely save Christmas from the supply chain. Buy some pottery from the local potter. Or start making your own pottery. Get someone who likes to hike a handmade walking staff from a local artisan. I bet there's someone in your neighborhood who will paint for you a beautiful watercolor of some place you haven't been able to travel to lately. Or you could just bake everyone you know cookies, especially if you can find local butter and local flour. That would save Christmas from the supply chain. Or you could eliminate the physical production, period. Write everyone a poem. Give everyone a poem for Christmas. They might be offended because you didn't buy it, but that's because we have defined Christmas the same way we have defined everything else as a form of productivity, as a counting up, as a hierarchy of wealth and power. Now, I know if you are buying your local produce at the farmer's market, it's more expensive. It's not actually more expensive in the long run. In the long run, buying stuff from big factories destroys the world and humanity and is subsidized by the government. So it even costs more dollars. Those dollars are just being moved around in the background. You are actually paying for that Chinese government support of that factory. You just don't see that you are. I know it's more expensive for you personally because of the supply chain world that has made things, quote, cheap in the short run and cost us everything in the long run. Before I quit my job, I'd shifted almost entirely to this mode of living. Buy everything local now. I have a lot less money, and I do find myself buying the cheapest object, even at the cost of the world, because, well, because I, I have to, to stay in my budget, to live in my house and feed my children. We are going to have to do the bigger things. Voting, protests, boycotts, all that stuff. To destroy this supply chain world to stop that profit monster from destroying everything. I doubt there's much you can do personally to get an N95 factory with only 12 employees set up in your town. But you can probably plant some tomatoes or find a community garden or get involved at the local makerspace or make your own cards for everyone. Those are the little things that you can do to move towards Kropotkin's vision of an integrated, a truly integrated society as opposed to this hierarchical chain of integration that we have now, in which everyone is tied together, but everyone is also segregated and kept in their place. I'm trying to make those little changes, and I do believe they will add up to big changes if we do them together. We can do it together. And that's Everyday Anarchism. Okay, we're going to be talking about Santa more this month. Remember, I would love your questions and comments at everydayanarchismpodcast at gmail.com. And if you can do your little part to keep this podcast alive by subscribing to the newsletter at everydayanarchism.com or giving a small financial token of your support or just telling a friend or rating it on Apple Podcasts, that would help me so much. If you can't do any of those, send me a poem. I would love to get a poem from you this Christmas. That would help me keep my soul alive and remind me that we are integrated in this together. Remember the music you're about to hear is by David Hill.